in seventh or eighth grade, I can't remember, I went to the Los Alamos High School Hilltoppers summer basketball camp. I was just in middle school. It was a, I think it was a two-week camp. And uh, at the end of the two weeks, there was a, uh, a ceremony, an awards ceremony. And uh, they were giving out, you know, the awards for MVP of the camp and... Uh, Best shooter, and I don't know. But there was one, there was one award that uh, the head coach of the varsity team, he was the guy running the camp. And they're, they're kind of, as, as these kids are coming up through the middle school and high school system, they want to uh, just encourage them, give them skills, prepare them for playing high school basketball. And so uh, the, this, the, the varsity coach was running the camp, and he's handing out these awards, and he gets to the final award. It's the final award given at the camp, and it's the Defensive Player of the Camp Award. And uh, I just wasn't a good basketball player. I was a pretty good athlete, but I wasn't a very good basketball player. Uh, I, just didn't grow, I just didn't grow up doing it. My, my dad was, uh, he, he taught me how to play baseball uh, from, his, you know, from before I can remember. I have, there are pictures of me playing baseball, but not so much basketball. So uh, I wasn't really anticipating anything. I'm fiddling with my shoelaces. The coach is talking about how the defensive player of the camp, the defensive award, is the most important award. For whatever reason, this coach thought, okay, defense wins games. It was a big deal to him. And, and, and when he called my name, I could not believe it. I, I actually think he probably uh, made a mistake, but I took it anyways. I got the defensive player of the entire camp. And with it came this trophy, this giant trophy. And I was like, this is amazing. I don't know, I, I don't know why I got this, but I love this trophy. And so I brought it home. I go, Dad, Mom, you won't believe, you know, you won't believe it. I, I got this award and they, got, they gave me this big trophy. And, and you know, I, I was just thinking about that recently because I, that trophy sat in my room for years. And, it, you know, it sat up on the desk or not on the desk, on the dresser. And it's like it, it, was, it, was, it was an important uh, memorial, I guess. It was an important thing that it was, that it was demonstrating. But, but, you know, what do you do with a trophy? I mean, what do, you, what do you do with it? It's important. It's valuable. But I was wondering, you know, these guys, they win the Stanley Cup. They're like, they're skating around the ring. They're holding that cup up. And I'm thinking, that's it? You have to, it what, do you, what do you do with the trophy? I, incidentally, this is funny. I, so I, I, I come to church this morning, and I, I uh, look in the, I'm just going through the closet back there. And I see this. You know, this is. This is important. But what do you do with it? I don't know. Put it in the closet, I guess. That's where it was. There's a lot of dust on this baby. Okay, it's important. But what do you do with it? I don't know. I don't know what you do with it. Well, I think in some ways, welcome to the resurrection. Well, what do we do with it? Have you ever noticed that the cross of Jesus tends to get more attention than the resurrection of Jesus? It's just interesting. The death of the Savior gets more focus than the event 
in which his victory was pronounced to the universe. I remember the first time that somebody pointed this out to me, and I I didn't really know what to say or think about it, but it's a noteworthy observation. I mean, nobody wears a tomb. Nobody wears an empty tomb around their neck on a necklace. right? Uh, Even in the church, it's the cross that takes the prominent role in our preaching or even, even in our decor. It's the cross. And I thought I'd point that out. But as I do it, I want you to know there are some reasons that that's the case. There are some good reasons that's the case. And there are some not so good reasons that that's the case. Let me give you one of the good reasons for why the cross tends to take uh, prominence over the resurrection in Christianity. You take a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It reads like this. For Christ, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, listen to what he says. Christ did not uh, send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly. So Paul equates the gospel with the word of the cross. It's a message about the cross. The word of the cross is folly, To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the message of what Christ accomplished on the cross that Paul regards as the power of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just a few verses later, we read about Paul's preaching strategy when he went to Corinth. This is what he says. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So one of the reasons that the cross takes center stage in Christianity is because there are instances where the cross is given center stage in the Bible. Paul is willing to call the gospel the word of the cross. The events that take place in the life of Jesus all seem to lead to or flow from Calvary. There is a sense in which the cross is the hour in which the Son of Man was most glorified. This is the greatest display of God's glory we will ever see. And for all eternity, we will grow in our appreciation of just what actually took place on that wondrous cross. That's one reason, and that's a very good reason, that the cross takes center stage. However, there are some reasons why the cross takes prominence over the resurrection, and some of them aren't necessarily good reasons. In fact, for many of us, it's not merely the case that the cross is in the center, but the resurrection has actually faded way into the shadows. You know what I mean? Uh, The centrality of the cross is supposed to be supported by this ever-present reality of the resurrection. But the resurrection is, in some cases at least, rarely recognized. And it's not because we have anything against the resurrection. We love the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate it. We're, we're, We're good Gentiles. We We make a whole holiday out of it. We eat pork. Ham in celebration of the Jewish Messiah. We love Easter. We know that Christ died for our sins. We know that he rose from the dead. We know that this is essential to our faith. 
Perhaps we even know that the resurrection is important for several type of, uh, types of apologetic arguments. Arguments that defend the faith. Let me give you an example. How do you explain the rapid expansion of early Christianity when its founder was murdered for his claim to be the son of God? How do you expand or how do you explain this rapid expansion if the very man who's making the claim that he's the son of God ends up getting murdered in the end? How does it succeed? You'd think that, I think I've shared this with you before, you would think that if Jesus were claiming to be the Son of God, but ends up being killed, that his followers would have been a little bit disillusioned by that setback, wouldn't you? You'd think that that would kind of like be like, hmm, I don't know if this is going to work. Strangely, though, ten out of the twelve Original disciples end up dying as martyrs for their testimony to this Christ. How do you explain it? Why didn't Christianity fizzle after the death of Jesus? Well, the most logical, the most rational explanation is that the disciples saw the resurrected Christ. And that's what strengthened them to testify unto death despite the fact that they saw him murdered. So the resurrection is what best explains the rise of Christianity in the ancient world. That's a good apologetic argument. It helps us defend the faith. But the reality is for many of us, and perhaps even for most of us, is that we're not quite sure what else the resurrection means for us, practically speaking. How does it impact my day-to-day life? We pull it out of the closet once a year, Easter Sunday, and we say, this is awesome, isn't it? Like a, like a trophy. And it is. It's awesome. But we don't know what to do with it. We're not sure what difference it makes. And that's what I want to talk about today. What difference does the resurrection make, practically speaking, in your life tomorrow morning when we leave Easter Sunday. And I'm going to basically follow the insights by this guy, Sam Alberry. He wrote a book here called Lifted, Experiencing the Resurrection Life. If you're looking for an explanation of how the resurrection makes a difference in your everyday life, this is the book you're looking for. It's a very easy read. He's, a, he's, a, uh, he's engaging. It's meaty, but it is not... Um, it's not good. You're not going to get uh, caught up in a lot of technical jargon. Okay, three practical implications of the res- resurrection. Three practical implications. Assurance, hope, and transformation. You can write that down. Assurance, hope, and transformation. The first practical implication of the resurrection is that the resurrection of Jesus provides Assurance. This is kind of an apologetic argument. This kind of defends the faith to some extent, but we're going to go there anyways. Assurance. And and it, it assures us of two things. One, it assures us that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection gives us assurance that Jesus really is the Son of God. You remember Jesus made this claim in his life. He claimed to be the Son of God during his earthly ministry. John chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father 
He's my father. My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted to kill him for calling God father. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, John goes on, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That's interesting. They're mad at him for calling God his own father. And John says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do. He's he's provoking them. He knows they're mad that he's calling himself son. John says, so he calls himself son. The Jewish leadership uh, didn't like this claim at all. It actually it comes up at, at Christ's trial, you might remember. The high priest asked him, this is Mark 14, starting in verse 61. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Christ's claim to be the son of God was at least one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that Jesus was murdered. The Jewish authorities not only didn't believe him, but they hated him for making this assertion of sonship. So... What do we make of the claim? What do we make of Christ's claim to be the Son of God? And by the way, it's not only a statement about his divinity. When Jesus calls himself Son of God, it is a statement about his royalty. If you go to Psalm 2, for example, you would see that the anointed one, uh, the King of Israel, is regarded to be the Son of God. That's just one of the titles that the kings were given in Israel. So when Jesus declares himself to be son of God, he's not only making a claim to his divinity, but he's also making a claim to the throne of David. Jesus is announcing his kingship, his divinity and his kingship. So what do we make of the claim? What do we make of this claim? Is Jesus the son of God? Is he the king? Is he the anointed one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the son of David? What's your opinion? Well, God has an opinion about Jesus' identity and Jesus' claim to sonship. God has an opinion about Jesus' claim to the throne, and he made a speech about it. The resurrection was his speech. The resurrection is what God has to say about Christ's claim. Romans 1, the first four verses, I think this is starting in about verse 3. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What this is saying is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was vindicating Christ's claim 
to be the Son of God. Paul says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The Father was authenticating Christ's royal identity by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is essentially a coronation ceremony in which the Father publicly enthrones Jesus as the royal Son of God who is free from this present fleshly age of death. He's given rule over the eternal age of life in the Spirit and therefore we can have assurance. We can have assurance of who Jesus is and that He is in fact exactly who He claimed to be. He is the divine Son of God. That's what the resurrection gives us assurance of because the Father says that this resurrection is a declaration that he is, in fact, the Son of God. The second way in which the resurrection gives us assurance is that, the, is, is that we can have assurance that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He's not only who he said he was, but he actually accomplished what he said he was going to do. You might remember Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Christ claims that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus tells his disciples, my life is going to be a sacrifice that is is going to function to purchase freedom for sinners. I'm a ransom. And rather than suffering the due consequences of your sin, I will take your judgment upon myself. And you can be found not guilty in the courtroom on the day of judgment. I'm your ransom. And it raises the question, well, did it work? Does God accept the payment? Will I really be found not guilty? Will I really be justified? That's the word that the Bible uses. That's the theological word that Paul uses most often to talk about being found not guilty in the courtroom. You know, what if what if the sacrifice doesn't cover my deepest sins? Like, what about all the parts of my faith that aren't genuine? Is the ransom really going to pay for everything? What if there are sins that I haven't discovered yet? What is God actually going to say to me on the day of judgment? I mean, what's he really going to say? Jesus said, I'm going to write a check on your behalf. I'm going to ransom you. So did the check clear? Did he have enough funds in the bank? And you can know exactly what God says. You can know exactly what God will say to you on the day of judgment because he's already given his approval of Christ's work when he rose him from the dead. Romans 4.22 says that Jesus was delivered up For our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was raised for our justification. What does that mean? Jesus was raised so that we hear not guilty in the courtroom. What does it mean? What does it mean that the resurrection of Christ is for the sake of hearing that declaration. 
It means that when God raises Jesus from the dead, it's his way of saying to us, the check is cleared. I have accepted the payment. You are indeed found not guilty. I accept him on your behalf. That's what the resurrection is. It's a verification that the work of salvation succeeded. The Father gives his approval. It's God's way of assuring us of the verdict in the courtroom on the last day. The Father has said, I accept the payment. Raise him up. And therefore, among other things, the resurrection is God's way of providing assurance for us that Jesus is who he said he is and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish. Resurrection is supposed to give us assurance. You can have assurance today that the Father has accepted the payment on your behalf. The resurrection testifies to that fact. Here's the second practical implication of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus provides hope. Hope for you today. And here's the hope. The hope is that we will rise from the dead one day as well. The resurrection provides hope for us that we Christians will rise from the dead one day as well. Did you know that this is what the Bible teaches? Many of you did. Uh, But this might be a surprise to some of us. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but Christians are also going to rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Christ is the first fruits of a coming harvest. Christ was resurrected, and we who are in Christ will also be resurrected as well. And if you're a Christian, this should give you incredible hope. It really should give us incredible hope. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit, but I'm going to do it by way of explaining a couple of problematic views of the resurrection. And if you believe one of these two views, it will diminish your hope in what's to come. And in, in explaining those views, I'm also going to explain the hope that we ought to have. The hope of what it means to have a resurrection on the way. So here's a problematic view of the resurrection that will diminish your hope. And it's, it's a view that over-spiritualizes our res- resurrection. If you over-spiritualize our resurrection, it will diminish your hope. I'm not, object- I'm not objecting to the fact that there is a spiritual element to our resurrection. And I'm going to come back in, in a few minutes and talk about that. But what I'm talking about right here is the belief in a strictly non-physical view of resurrection. Some people believe in a strictly non-physical view of resurrection. In fact, even in American pop culture, when most people think of heaven, they think of living in a non-physical state forever, right? Some people are surprised to discover that the Bible teaches very clearly, actually. I was surprised to, to, to learn about this within the last 10 years. 
that we will not be living in an ethereal, disembodied, ghost-like state for eternity. Did you realize that? Most, most, most people probably don't think of heaven that way. When Jesus returns, we will be raised from the dead in a new, glorified, physical body that will be equipped for the eternal environment that will be our home on the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15:51 begins like this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Some people believe that uh, the concept of resurrection is just a, a metaphor for some, some form of, of mystical or psychological state. But it's just not what we find in the scriptures. What we find are promises of a new body prepared for a, a new earth. And that is supposed to give us hope for what's to come. Did you know that the creation cannot wait until we get our new bodies? That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 8, 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation cannot wait until we are glorified. And I wonder if we're all that excited about it. I'm not all that excited about it a lot of the time, right? I'm just being honest with you guys so you can be honest with yourself. The creation can't wait, but I'm all good. Our destiny is inconceivably wonderful. Listen to the way that Randy Alcorn describes the eternal state. He says it will be familiar, earthly, embodied. It's not going to feel foreign. It will feel like home. He says we're not leaving our favorite things behind when we go there. Heaven retains what is good. Don't think of the best as being behind you. The best is yet to come. He says it's not static. It's dynamic. There will be time and there will be space. You think there's nothing to do? No. There is a God to worship. There is a God to serve. There is a universe to rule. There is purposeful work to accomplish. He says it's not boring. It's fascinating. He says when we get there, we don't lose desire. When we get there, there is a continuous fulfillment of desire. Hey, folks, the reality is when you go to the eternal state, anticipate food. Anticipate weather. Anticipate friendships. I have past passages for all that. Okay, food, Luke twenty-two eighteen. 18. Weather, Ezekiel 34, 26. Friendships, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, 20, chapter 4. Check it out. Most of all, anticipate seeing... And knowing and relating to God in a physical world without any of the hindrances of sin. Listen to, listen to Augustine describe how he's imagining 
what it's going to be like to have a body and be in a physical world without the hindrances of sin. He says, it is possible, it is indeed most probable that we shall see then in such a fashion as to observe God in utter clarity and distinctness, seeing him everywhere present and governing the whole material scheme of things. He will be seen in the new heavens and earth, in the whole creation. He will be seen in every body, by means of bodies, wherever the eyes are directed with their gaze. It's like uh, when Neo could finally see the Matrix. Remember that? He could see the code that created the whole world that he was in. That happened to be a fake world. This one's going to be real. Augustine says, everywhere we look in the new creation, we'll have eyes to see the reality of the God who is sustaining the new cosmos. We won't be blind to God. We are going to see him everywhere. And therefore, he's going to be the joy that undergirds every joy that the new creation provides. Don't over-spiritualize Your future resurrection. Christians will live eternally in a familiar yet glorified physical world with a resurrected, glorified physical body, just like the resurrected, glorified physical body of Jesus. It's meant to give you hope, great hope of what's to come. Eternity with God will be very physical, and that's meant to fuel your hope. So don't over-spiritualize your coming resurrection. That would be a problematic and a hope-diminishing way to think. A second problematic view of resurrection that diminishes hope is an over-realized view of resurrection. An over-realized view of resurrection. This is a view that expects the Christian life that we are living right now to be filled with the blessings that will only come to us in their fullness at the future resurrection. We're over-realizing the resurrection. We're expecting some of the things that are not yet supposed to be here as though they are here now. Now, again, there is a sense in which we are already tasting the reality of the resurrection. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But we're not tasting everything. Not yet. We're not tasting everything yet. An over-realized view of resurrection expects things that are not yet to be happening already. For example, we read about in the Bible great promises of wealth and great promises of health and great promises of prosperity. Jeremiah 30, 17, Amos 9, 11, Matthew 6, 19 to 20. And, and make no mistake about it, there will be great health and treasure and success in every conceivable way when we enter into glory when Christ returns. But those promises do not guarantee us health, wealth, and prosperity right now. You may have heard teachers on television or other places that encourage you to claim these promises of prosperity as though they are intended to be apprehended by God's people here and now, as though as though God has promised our best life now. As though we already have access to the full 
consummated blessings of the age to come. In fact, you might remember that we talked about this when we went through 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians, some of the Corinthians actually believed this. Actually believed that, that, that they had already entered into that, 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 that resurrected state. It's a dangerous way to think, so Paul responds to it, and he does it kind of sarcastically. In chapter 4, verse 8, here's what Paul says as he addresses the Corinthians who believe this. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, apostles, without us, you have become kings. It's very thick sarcasm right there. Because the reality is, is it's not the case. We don't, we don't have all we want yet. No way. No way. This is not all I want. I don't know about you, but this is not all I want. Okay? We're not experiencing all the riches yet. We're not ruling over the new creation with Christ yet. In fact, if you're under the impression that this is how the Christian life is supposed to be, you're going to be very, very disappointed. It's going to damage your faith because rather than hoping for the fully consummated blessings of God to unfold at the resurrection, you will be looking for them here and now. And the reality is that for Christians, and perhaps even especially for Christians, we're going to suffer in this world, just like Jesus did, just like Paul did. So just a few verses later, listen to how Paul describes his life. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. You see, rather than setting our hope on the unstable foundation of a good life right now, God intends for us to set our hope on the immovable promise of a consummated resurrection that lies ahead. It's it's in the future. It's coming. It is coming, by the way. It is coming. It's just not here yet. And it's meant to strengthen us to endure our sufferings. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope for our own resurrection. And if you want to experience that hope, then we have to make sure that we don't over-spiritualize it. And we have to make sure that we don't over-realize it. Those are two ways, or that's, yeah, those are two hope-diminishing ways of thinking of resurrection. When in fact, God wants the resurrection to give us hope. A third practical implication of the resurrection is that the resurrection of Jesus provides transformation. And it provides transformation here and now. The resurrection of Jesus provides transformation in our lives right here, right now. Now, let me begin by clarifying how this relates to the point that I just made. Because I, I just said that it's important to realize that when we consider the fact that Christians will be resurrected, we need to make sure that we realize that our completed, perfected, consummated resurrection will be physical and it will be in the future. It will be physical. It will be in the future. But that does not mean that every aspect of our resurrection is physical. And it does not mean that every aspect of our resurrection is future. Some aspects of resurrection are spiritual and they are present realities for Christians. Catch that? Some aspects of resurrection are spiritual in nature and they are present realities. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about how we have been united to Jesus with such a cohesive bond between he and us 
that the death of Jesus counts for us. God views us as being in him. So therefore, when he died, we died. Union. His death means my death. And likewise, that same union with Jesus so fuses us together with him that we are somehow included in his resurrection. Everything that happens to him has implications for us because God has graciously, I don't know, locked locked us together with him. So his resurrection entails our resurrection. And our experience of Christ's resurrection comes in two very distinct stages. You as a Christian will experience the resurrection of Jesus in two very distinct stages. An inauguration stage and a consummation stage. And we already talked about the consummation. That's what we were just talking about. The consummation of our resurrection. It's a future-oriented expectation of the full restoration and glorification of our body. Our entire being puts on immortality. That's the consummate stage of resurrection. But presently, right now, we are already experiencing the reality of the resurrection of Jesus in an inaugural form. This is an initial taste of the resurrected life. And it's an inner reality. It's an inner reality of being renewed by the Holy Spirit. We are presently being transformed. That is our experience of resurrection life. It starts with something called new birth. It's the the awakening from spiritual death. Take your Bibles, please, and go to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see that we are already experiencing resurrection reality. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And you were dead. You were dead. Dead. Not sleepy. Not hard-hearted. Although that may count. Not merely hard-hearted, not merely sleepy, not distracted. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were dead, and by nature we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's called resurrection. We were brought to life. We were made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. That's resurrection. Seated us with him in the heavenly places. I want you to notice the past tense of those verbs. You were made alive. You were raised up. You're already tasting the reality of the resurrection. There is a consummate 
form of resurrection that you will taste someday when you are raised bodily from the dead. But already, right now, we are tasting the reality of what it means to be brought from death to life. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're already experiencing something of the new creation. Inwardly. In the inner man. And it's not, and not only has this process begun with the new birth, but it's, it's an ongoing reality. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Though our outer self is wasting away, my body is falling apart. I have pain in my wrist. I have other pain too. You do too, I'm sure. This outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the reality of the resurrection already taking place inside of me. I'm different. You're different. Why? Because you've been raised up with Christ. Our present participation in the resurrection of Jesus might be described simply in terms of our new spiritual life, our new spirit-filled life of being rehabilitated by God day after day. And you know what the bottom line is for those of us who are already tasting the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. You know what it means for us, practically speaking? It means you can change. You can change. Romans 6, 4. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too. What do you think he says? You you might think he says, we too have been raised from the dead. You might think that's what he says, because that's kind of how it sounds like he's going to say it. But that's not what he says. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what it looks like to be tasting the reality of the resurrection. We walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus means, practically speaking, you can live differently. You can live a new life. You can change. That's a very practical implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. You're not stuck. Anybody feel stuck? Anybody feel like you're just caught in the same pattern over and over again? You're not stuck. You are not stuck. You can change. That's awesome news. I mean, do you do we realize how many Billions and billions, probably trillions of dollars people spend on trying to change. Self-help. Counseling. Programs. Vacation. Rehab. Schooling. Training. Resolutions. Self-discipline. Incarceration, bribery, reflection, meditation, coercion, support groups, religion, manipulation, medicine, distraction, exercise. I want to change. Hey, and and, and perhaps some of those things 
are very practical tools that really do play some role in helping us along the path. But the real key to change, true change in the heart at the deepest level, the real key to genuine transformation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in Him, not only will you be transformed someday, but you have been and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as you participate in the new creation life of the resurrection of our Savior. And therefore, the resurrection has very practical implications for our day-to-day lives. It's not just a trophy. It's not just a trophy that sits in the closet. It has meaning for your life today. It has meaning for your life tomorrow. It's a declaration that assures you that Jesus really is who he said he is. And he really did what he said he was going to do. The resurrection is the first installment of a coming harvest that provides hope for us. That our future resurrection is certain. It's coming, guys. It's coming. And the resurrection is a transformation that we are already experiencing as God renews us day by day through the power of his spirit so that by his grace we can change. And here's what I want you to do in response to this. I want you to go tell of his goodness. Go go tell people of this goodness. This goodness. There is assurance. There is hope. And people can change. Go tell the world. Go tell the world. They need it. People want to change. People need hope. People need assurance. Amen? Amen. And Jesus provides it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, for the assurance that you give to us. We praise you for the hope that you give to us. We praise you for the change that you bring about in us, Lord. Thank you so much that we are not stuck Thank you so much that we have the certainty that, Jesus, you are who you said you were. Lord Jesus, you have accomplished what you said you would accomplish. Very soon we will taste the reality of this purchase in its full consummated form. We cannot wait, Lord, to be with you. I pray that we would join with the creation with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. We pray that you would help us to take courage, Lord, and know that you are changing your people. So help us to take this message, Lord. To take this message and to tell of your goodness to a world that needs assurance, a world that needs hope, people who desperately, desperately want to change and keep falling back into the same patterns over and over again. Because they've never heard of the resurrection. Certainly never tasted it. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for giving your life, Lord. All of God's people said.